Hey, welcome to the AOL Podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message with Pastor Travis Bennett. God, we thank you for this time together tonight. Lord, I just pray that we hear your voice tonight. And the voice of a stranger we will and shall not follow. God, I just pray right now for direction, understanding, opening eyes to see, opening ears to hear. I pray, God, for those that may have came in with something heavy, laden, burdened, that, uh, uh, may, that's made them to question things, to doubt things, to maybe even be shameful of some things. But God, I, uh, we don't worry about the future. God, I just thank you that you've already paid the price. The race has already been run. And so, God, I just pray tonight, God, that you build our faith, that we, uh, um, as we meet with you, Lord, I just pray that you're Jehovah Rapha. You're the God who heals. And I just pray for those in the room that need healing in their body. I pray from the top of their head to the soles to the tips of their toes that they would experience the blood of Jesus that covers them. Lord, I lift up those in this house, Lord, that need a healing touch. I just pray, God, that uh, you would do miracle work and reconnect our faith with theirs. I thank you, God, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're Jehovah Rapha. And so, Lord, I just pray. I thank you that you're Jehovah Jireh, you're our provider. You supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I will save the Lord that you're our refuge, you're our fortress. It's in you, God, that we put our trust. And so, God, I just pray that you are supplying needs tonight in Jesus' name. Thank you that you're Jehovah Sikhanu, that you are our righteousness. Our righteousness is filthy rags. But, God, I thank you for the righteousness that you have given us. Right standing with the Lord. We praise you tonight. We glorify your name in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Well, who's happy to be here? All right, we got the frozen chosen. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, How about next year, y'all just come to Florida with us and take the whole spring break with us. Amen. Hey, it was cold there. I I, I guess I took it there, but uh, me and Pastor Ty teed off to play golf on Wednesday morning. It was 53 degrees. And all I had taken was shorts. And uh, for some reason, me and him don't wear the same size pants. So I was stuck with shorts. I said, man, we're going to have to get some meat on your bones, Pastor Ty. All right. Are you all ready to get in the Word tonight? How many of y'all know obedience requires change? How many of y'all know? I'm going to ask it again. How many of y'all know obedience requires change? Right, Gabe? Uh, now I want to see a poll in here. How many of y'all like change? Let me see those of you that like change. All right. How many of y'all don't like change? All right. Wow. Wow. I'm going to be preaching to y'all tonight. Are you ready for that? You know, it's funny. The other morning we were talking about it. It's, it's so funny. I'm telling you. Uh, um, we're, me and Pastor Ty and Pastor Luann and, and Brandy and myself were sitting around. I, I am so much like Pastor Luann, and my wife is so much like her daddy. She may not tell you that she's not, but she is. She is, she is so impulsive. She loves change. And uh, I'm just thankful that she has stayed married to me because she likes new things. And, you know, I like to process stuff. I, uh, you know, even buying cars and brandy, she gets so frustrated with me because I like to deal and uh, not to say that she doesn't, because she is, that's what, uh, another gifting she gets from her father. When you buy cars, she's fun to buy cars with, see, salesmen's really. And so that's a whole different subject. But 
the whole point of it is 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 uh, that I like to process things, but Brandy, she's like immediate. Like, let's do it right now. And I'm like, no, I have to think about this. And if you've been around Pastor Ty, he's the same way. He loves change. I mean, he 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 floors. Uh, at one time, he had this um, this leather cowboy looking. You might y'all might. I called it a purse, a man purse. Kind of gave him. You know what I'm talking about? Now he has like this super preppy blue backpack that holds his iPad and stuff in there. I'm like, I don't even know this guy. You know what I'm saying? He like changes on me all the time. And uh, in fact, he walked out with it. And I looked at Pastor Ann. I'm like, I will never understand this individual. I mean, he is just, he loves change. But how many of y'all know change is a good thing? In fact, I look at successful people. I see that, that they have the ability to change because they see beyond it. In, in staff meetings all the time, I'll probably drive the staff crazy. Because rather than, well, last year this is the way we did it. And it might have been good. But I want to process this and say, Hey, it might have been good, but let's make it great. And if it's on a different day, it's on a different day. And I know this blows the minds of some church people. It's like, this is the color of the walls, and this is the way this will always be since 1955. But how many of y'all know change, or, or if you don't change, you come to a place of mediocrity? How many of y'all know mediocrity is a bad place to be? During uh, the surgery, I read several books. One of them I read by uh, Bill O'Reilly was Killing Kennedy. And in the book, Killing Kennedy, he talks about how uh, John Wilkes Booth, who killed Kennedy. It's all right if I tell a little history fact right here. You guys will enjoy this. But uh, as b- before he goes to the, the Ford um, Theater, um, it, it came out in the paper that the, the president and actually Ulysses A. Grant was going to be there at the Ford uh, Theater with him. And they were going to see one show, but Mary um, uh, Mary Kennedy, she, she said, or, um, not Killing Kennedy, Killing Lincoln, sorry. I'm saying Killing Kennedy. I'm reading Killing Kennedy right now. That's the problem. But Killing Lincoln. But, uh, but Mary, Lincoln's wife, said, I don't want to see that. So he pulled some strings, something about being the President of the United States of America. That he said, uh, we're going to see a different one. So anyways, uh, he finds out about it in the paper, John Wilkes Booth. He's staying at the Willard Hotel. Across the street is a stables where he rents a horse that he is not going to return. (laughs) And he goes to Ford Theater that night. Of course, the president's there. He goes up on the second part of Ford Theater uh, where he is shot. But he walks in the door, and they are taking tickets. The only reason that um, John Wilkes Booth got into Ford Theater that night was because his parents were immigrants, and he was here, and he was an actor. And every night, he played a role, in fact, in the play that was going to be played that morning, or, or that morning when they changed it, because Mary wanted to see a different one, they changed it so it gave him the opportunity to go there and to kill Kennedy, or kill Lincoln. i got to stop saying that. Kill Lincoln. And so when he gets there, they ask, They don't even ask him for a ticket because he's an actor, and they are so comfortable with him, they let him in the doors. And they were so comfortable with him, they let him upstairs. Here's another interesting fact. This isn't with my point. But after he shoots Lincoln, Lincoln leans over in the chair. He shoots him. He jumps off the, second, uh, the balcony of the Ford Theater, and his spur caught 
the United States of America flag, dangled him upside down, and he fell down, broke his leg, and that's how they got him. I pledge allegiance. How many of y'all thankful for old glory tonight? Isn't that good? That's just an interesting fact. But my whole point is this. When we get comfortable, we open the door to things in our life that will take us places that we don't want to go or keep us places that we don't need to stay. Are you hearing me tonight? And so looking at the life of, you're like, Pastor, we're talking about Saul tonight. Yeah, I know. But sometimes we look at somebody's life and we don't have the perspective of where they got, how they got there. We don't, we don't know the mountains that they climbed. We don't know the transitions that they had to endure in order to get there. How many of y'all know it required change? And obedience requires change. In 2 Kings chapter 5, I love the story of Naaman. You know the story where Naaman, the, the officer or the leader, lieutenant of the army, where he goes to Elisha's house and he has had leprosy and the girl leads him there. You need to go to the prophet's house. You can go and look this up, but it's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. It's one of my favorite stories. But he goes to the prophet and he says, I have leprosy. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Jordan. I want you to dip in it seven times. Of course, you know, know the story. He's like, I'm a man of power. Why am I going to go do something that's so stupid? This is so crazy. But because of his obedience. And how many of y'all know there had to be a change of his attitude in order for him to obey? So he had to change his attitude. And you know, I've, I've thought about this many times before. How many of y'all know that even in times of change, it's uncomfortable the first time? Don't you know when he came up out of that water the first time, he's like, this is so dumb. And when you begin to change things in your life, you're thinking, thinking to yourself, why am I doing this? Like, why have I made the decision to really do this? Because the other way was just so comfortable. But how many of y'all know he came up out of that water and said, you know what? The prophet said, I got to do it again. Consistency creates confidence. And so he dips down in it again. You know what I see about this story? Of course, he dips down the second time, the third time. And he's thinking, I'm such, this, this, this is so uncomfortable. Don't you know, even if he was by himself, it's like, who's watching me? I feel like such an idiot. And there's some of you that don't like change, and that's how you feel. It's like, oh, my gosh, I've, I've preached about getting in rhythms before. Even in our walk with Christ, don't get in a rhythm. Don't even get in a rhythm with reading your word. Should you read it every day? Yes, you should. But if you get in a rhythm to where you're just checking it off the list, you're not getting anything out of it. Are you hearing me? And so the fourth day, he, fourth time he goes down, comes out, fifth, sixth, seventh. You know what this teaches me? It teaches me this, that if he would have just done it the first time and came up and been clean, he wouldn't have learned a valuable lesson. He needed to do it. How many of y'all know it takes sacrifice day after day after day? How many of y'all know it takes obedience day after day after day. And looking at the life, looking at the life of Naaman here, but also looking at the life of Saul, I look at his life and I see this. Lots of times we read Acts chapter 9 and we see his conversion that he was instantly in success overnight. But as I begin to really dig deeper into the story of, of Saul, I see that he's someone like you and I. He had to dip in the Jordan River. He had to break some things off of him. He also, too, had to cleanse some things, make a new heart on the inside of him. He had to go through a breaking. It didn't happen just overnight. How many of y'all know we want it overnight? 
I'm going to say that one more time. How many of y'all know we won it overnight? Had a young man that was helping me last week, uh, or uh, right before we went on vacation. He told me, uh, he goes to church here, and um, he said, hey, I've shot some horses. you mind if I go and shoot a few horses with you? I said, sure. That'd be, that'd be awesome. I could use help. Anyway, I, I could tell right out the gate that this wasn't his first day on the job. And so he began to tell me his story, and, and um, it goes along with what I'm talking about tonight, was he, uh, and, and I, I want to interview him sometime because his story, I, I said, you're like Alexander Supertramp. You remember that movie, Into the Wild, where he'd been all over the place? But this young man, when he was 15, thir- uh, 13, 15, and I think 16 years old, he went to the Boy Scout camp in uh, New Mexico. It's called um, the Philmont. The Philmont Ranch, Boy Scouts have owned it forever. It's I think it's like over two hundred thousand acres, and they were they uh, have cowboys there that that uh, they raise beef, but also they have some buffalo and they got a bunch of mules too, or or um, donkeys I should say. And uh, anyways, he he had the desire when he turned eighteen years old. He told his parents, "I want to go back to the Philmont and become a cowboy." Those of you that know anything about the cowboy culture. It doesn't work like that. You don't just go somewhere and be a cowboy. It, it's something that he had to be brought up in. He had to learn. It wasn't something that you just go and say, all right, I'm a, I'm a new guy. It's not like turning wrenches. Uh, they're going to run off anybody who is a gunzel, all right? Just because you have a hat and some boots doesn't make you a cowboy to these guys. And so, anyways, uh, he said, so he calls them and says, hey, I want to be a cowboy. And they said, that's not how it works. He said, well, what's the one thing that I could learn to do that you would accept me? They said, well, uh, uh, sorry, sir. He said, no, please tell me. He said, well, learn how to shoe horses. So he goes to the school in Missouri <clears throat> and uh, one of the best horseshoeing schools. He does it for six months, gets out. His dad says, hey, I know a guy who does that. Well, this guy happens to be the guy who shoes all the Clydesdale horses for Budweiser in St. Louis, Missouri. This boy grew up right in the middle of St. Louis, Missouri, wants to be a cowboy. So then uh, he, he does that for a year. He calls Philmont and said, hey, I learned how to shoe. And they're like, yeah, right. He said, no, let me come out and shoe one horse, and I'll show you. So he goes out there. He shoes one horse, and they said, all right, we'll hire you for the summer, and you can be on the dude crew where you just, they, they basically have all these lead lines of horses together. And when the Boy Scouts come during the summer, they, they saddle all these horses, and they take them up the mountain. So when the dude crews over, he's like, I want to be a cowboy now. And they're like, still, you don't know what a cowboy is. So he puts an ad out, in the paper, uh, out on the Internet and says, I want to become a cowboy. He's very honest, very humble. He says, I've never learned how to break colts. I don't know anything about cows, but I'm willing to learn, and I'm an Eagle Scout. I, I've known some other Eagle Scouts, too. They know how to figure some things out. Really, the Boy Scouts, before they got woke, was a good deal. And anyways, he puts it out there. He has this clunker truck. He's driving back from Cimarron, New Mexico to St. Louis, Missouri. On his way there, halfway there, his truck breaks down. He calls his dad collect and says, Dad, broke down. I'm fixing my truck. But is there any way, uh, or, or um, he said, has anybody called? He said, yeah, this guy answered your ad. He lives up on the Canada border by Montana. <clears throat> and uh, he's interested in you. He says, okay, so he calls him right there for where he's broke down. He calls him and says, uh, you know, he interviews him. He says, it doesn't scare me that you're not a cowboy, but I'm, I'm interested in you because you're an Eagle Scout. I've had one several years ago, 
and I'm interested because you boys know how to figure some things out. He said, but I'll teach you how to break colts and teach you how to look after cattle and things like that. So he says, uh, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on you, but this is what you're going to need. You're going to need a saddle. You need a saddle pad. You need some headgear, some bits. Uh, and um, he said, but also, too, I want you to bring some shoeing stuff. All he had was his hand tools, so he had to buy an anvil. He bought a forge. He boxed all this up, sent it up there to where this guy was in Montana. He had a few, he had a few hundred dollars left, buys a train ticket, and rides it from St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri, up to Montana. The guy picks him up. He stays on that ranch for two and a half years and learns everything. And then from there, of course, he knows how to weld and all this. So this guy takes him in and is like, man, you're super handy. Then uh, the Bartlett's in Wyoming, great big uh, horse operation. Big, isn't it, Gabe? Great big. 200,000 acres. Guy says, all right, I'm going to put 18 horses on your string that you ride, you raise, you break. And, I, and when you sell them, you'll get some profits off of that. But also, too, you're going to go work cattle with me. He does that for another three and a half years. Philmont calls him back. Says, you want a job? That was always his dream to go to the Philmont. Listen to this. The guy who had been the cowboy boss of the Philmont, the, the lead cowboy, had been there for like 30 years. He was retiring. This young man goes there for six months. The guy retires and says, the one who needs to take the job is this boy right here. He becomes cowboy boss of the Philmont Ranch in Cimarron, New Mexico after eight years. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible about somebody who was willing to learn? He said, I was so out of my element. I went from St. Louis, Missouri, and now I am not breaking ice up in Montana with a shovel. I'm breaking it with tractors. Like, I would drive out onto ponds, and it, my, the tractor would not go through. That's how thick the ice was. He had to learn different elements. He had to learn. He told me of all this different change that he went through. But now I look at him and see what a hand, what a cowboy that he is. And looking, listen, lots of times we'll take for granted when somebody comes up that they just became this overnight. But listening to his story, how many of y'all know we all have a story? How many of y'all know God's taken us from rags to riches? How many of y'all know God's redeemed us, forgiven us of our sins, and cleansed us from all unrighteousness? Well, when I look at a life like Saul here and listen to this young man's story, <clears throat> we have to be willing to go through some change. I'm going to say that to those of you that don't like change. We have to be willing to go through some change. And so I want to start tonight in Psalm 51 and verse 1 through 4. It says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done the evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't you love that scripture? <clears throat> I'm going to take a quick drink. We'll get started here. In the 51st Psalm, David asked the Lord to change ugly habits that held him in a tight grip for a long time. Hypocrisy, murderous thoughts, adulterous, uh, adultery, uh, rationalization, and, and a stubborn will, 
distance from his Lord. Realizing how bad it had become, he acknowledged, I need my heart changed, and only you, Lord, can make it happen and cause it to last. So he invited the Lord into the situation to clean it and remold it. Don't you know that heart surgery is God's specialty? I'm going to say that again. How many of y'all know heart surgery is God's specialty? Uh, Though the process is painful, the results are always magnificent. Says in Ezekiel, take my heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. Looking back to the book of Acts where we left off, Saul and Barnabas are having the time of their life. Ministering together in one of the most remarkable revivals to date in church history. The church was taking off and growing at a high rate of speed. Lives were being changed on the daily and the spirit of God was free to move about the cabin. The scene is nothing more than excitement, and every day that intensifies. The worship, the harmony, the the conversions, the growth, all contagious. Suddenly, God steps in, and everything changes. And how many of y'all know that's what revival is? Hey, hey, come on. We got to be willing to change in order for revival to take place. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, or Niger, I don't know how to say it, <clears throat> Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod, the patriarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid the, their hands on them, They sent them away, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Chances are good that some, not all, of the believers at Antioch might have resisted the change that was taking place in the beginning, but not Saul. I believe he ran with it. He and change had become familiar with each other up up until this point in his life. If you would pause and remember, his life was directly related to his willingness to accept change. Some would say that one of the main reasons the man lived so cleanly before the Lord was because of the way he learned how to accept change. On his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, a light came from heaven and he was converted to Christ. A radical transformation. He was then led to live and serve among the whole new group of people. The Christians he once persecuted became his colleagues in ministry. Think about this kind of change. And then there was Arabia, a change in surroundings, change of pace, change of lifestyle. Though we don't know all God accomplished during the lengthy uh, desert sabbatical, we do know this, Saul changed. From there he went to Damascus, then back to Jerusalem, then back to Tarsus where he stayed in waiting for many years. The man went through change, change, and change again. A converted Jew living in his hometown, a man Uh, No one wanted, friendless, homeless, directionless. For multiple years, he lived as a hermit, willingly submitting to the potter's firm, but gracious hands. Romans chapter 9 and verse 21 says, Does not the potter have power? This is Paul right here speaking to us in the book of Romans. Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Isaiah 29, 16 says, Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it? 
He did not make me, or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Finally, he hears a knock at the door. To his delight, it was his friend, but Barnabas. How many of y'all were here a couple weeks ago or a month ago when we talked about but Barnabas? I'm writing a book right now called But Barnabas. I should call it But Dad because my kids always say But Dad. Now I say, I'm not But Dad, I'm just Dad. All right? How many of y'all can vouch for that? But Dad, I'm not But Dad. I'm just Dad. How many of y'all, any But Moms out there? All right, we got some But Moms too. All right, very good. He came to enlist him back into service. Barnabas needed a point man for the enormous undertaking in Antioch. Another complete set of changes. Imagine the shock to Saul. He was about to go from a nobody in Tarsus to a limelight in Antioch, where people would cling to his every word. In Tarsus, nobody would listen to him. There in Antioch is where he and Barnabas would team up together and do ministry for an entire year. And in the midst of that wonderful, fruitful, growing ministry, something totally unexpected happened. God decided to change things up again. I'm telling you, that's a good sign when God begins to change things up. He had plans to uproot the two of them and put them on the road, road together. What a change. Let's look more into this. The growth in this church would have made <clears throat> church system gurus head spin today. Talk about a model of health and effectiveness. Let's read this again and put yourself in the middle of all of it. The congregation, I put it in the message, so it's kind of watered down, so we did it. Just saying, that's my two cents. The congregation in Antioch was blessed with a number of prophet, preachers, and teachers. Barnabas, Simon, nicknamed Niger, Lucius, the Cyrenian, Cyrenian, sorry, Manian, uh, and advisor of the ruler Herod, Saul. One day, as they were worshiping God, you know, this is when revival takes place. They were also fasting, and they waited for guidance, so the Holy Spirit spoke. This really ministered to me as I was reading this. We need to take time for the Holy Spirit to speak. Take Barnabas and Saul and commission them for the work I have called them to do. So they commissioned them, and in that circle of intensity and obedience of fasting and praying, they laid hands on their heads, and they sent them off. Antioch Assembly, I don't know what what they called it, Antioch Arena of Life, Antioch Baptist, I don't know. Antioch Assembly was obviously the place to be. Not only did they have spiritual growth, but the staff was the dream team. Sounds like a pretty good lineup of people. The believers in Antioch were being fed or led by, led and fed, sorry, by five choice prophets, preachers, and teachers of excellence. That, that is what they needed, the right leaders to lay a strong foundation. The congregation had to have loved it because they received the truth. Encouragement and great worship. The place was thriving on solid meat from the word. The diet was wholesome and nourishing. The teaching was rich and deep. It will remind you of what Charles, it reminded me, sorry, of what Charles Spurgeon said for, for our day. Sermons should have real teaching in them. And their doctrine should be solid, substantial, and abundant. We do not enter the pulpit to talk for talk's sake. We have instructions to convey important importance to the last degree, and we cannot afford to utter petty nothings. Our range of subjects is all but boundless, and we cannot therefore be excused if our discourses are threadbare 
and devoid of substance. If we speak as ambassadors for God, we need never complain of want of matter. For our message is full to overflowing. The entire gospel must be presented from the pulpit. The whole faith, once delivered to the saints, must be proclaimed by us. The truth as it is in Jesus must be instructive, lay declared so that the people may not merely hear, but know the joyful sound. Nothing can compensate for the absence of teaching. One of the most important factors in deciding where you and your family attend church should be first substantial and consistent teaching from the word of God. Amen? Can I get an amen? It's not enough that you have friends that go there, but that is important. I agree. It's not that they, uh, that they play your style of worship or that your kids like it. These are all great and important. You have to have good food in order to survive. Your soul longs for a substantial diet to nourish your life and your spirit, man. Every great restaurant has one primary element that will draw a crowd night after night, week after week, and year after year. Great food. Most of us would sacrifice lots of other things to have the best food in town. I can't speak for all of America, but Texans like meat. Where's all my Texans at? I said, can I get an amen there? I forgot I said that. Can I get an amen? What makes the difference between a great restaurant and a mediocre one? The chef. The better the chef, the better the food. The better the food, the more popular the place will be. Antioch had the best chefs in the region. It was not just one, but it was five of them. Saul fit this group of people like chefs fit a great restaurant. It was a place for him to exercise the gifts and deliver his best. Wouldn't you have loved to be one sitting in the congregation of people? It had to be great to listen to Saul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to open the scrolls of the Old Testament and teach God's word. These many babies in Christ savored and swallowed up every rich morsel of truth. People were probably like Peter during the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 4. Peter blurted out, Lord, it's so wonderful that we're all here together. If you want, I'll construct three shines, shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Lord, Let's just put up a tent and stay here. The problem with this response is that God's work there is not a permanent campsite. The problem with the, the, this response is that in God's work, there is not a permanent campsite on earth. Eventually, the time, time comes to pull up stakes. You know, the Lord put it on my heart years ago. I preached a sermon on this when, when Pastor was still just going on sabbatical and he would have me preach. Many of y'all might have been here, but... We can't stay here. You know, I see so many people just like the response of Peter said to the Lord. Let's just stay here. Right here. Let's keep it exactly the same. Can you imagine if they would have built that tent? How many of y'all know it had to be great? Can you imagine being up there? Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. And they're about to be uh, visited by some studs. He's like, let's just build a tent. Let's just stay here. Can I tell you, so many people do that in their walk with Christ. I, I, just, want to stay, I just want to stay right here. But think about it. If Jesus wouldn't have came off the mountain, in fact, when he comes off the mountain is when the demoniac comes after him. And his dad says, I can't do anything to it. Remember, he goes, he said, you faithless generation. The disciples said, we've already tried. But he cast, 
He brought freedom to that young man. But if he'd have been on the mountain, freedom wouldn't have come to that young man. Aren't you thankful that Jesus came down off the mount? Transfiguration. <clears throat> the, I, I think, I mean, gosh. Uh, the woman, after he comes up off of the mountain, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, love that story. The, the man that was blind from birth. Uh, the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, I could go on. Um, Raise Lazarus from the dead. How about this? Here's a big one. The cross. How many of y'all know that's a big deal? Aren't you thankful that he came down off of the mountain? And we can't stay here. The resurrection. When I was uh, uh, four years ago, I was invited to go on a hunting trip with Willie George. Willie George, they call him kind of the general of the faith. But he was, uh, uh, I'm an 80s kid. Grew up in the church under Gospel Bill. He was Gospel Bill. And started a church called Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now he pours into pastors' lives. And uh, sitting around the table with a lot of other men uh, that are pastors, <clears throat> we just begin to ask questions. And one of the things that he told me, he said, are you pastoring your, the church yet? Uh, this was Pastor George asked me the question. I said, no, uh, uh, we're, in, we're about to make the transition uh, this year. And he said, well, can I, t- can I give you some advice? Don't be afraid of change. And then he told me this. He said, and I had heard this advice before. I think I'd read it in a book, and he requoted it. He said, when you pastor a church and you take over, it's like you're, you are the captain of a cruise ship. He said, you got all kinds of different people on that ship, and if you turn that ship too hard, people are going to fall off the side. But you've got to turn it. You've got, he looked at me. He said, young man. You've got to turn it. And he began to tell me a story of a man in the faith that there's some in here that you've probably read some of his books. I mean, he is like Smith Wigglesworth, man of the faith. And when he was young in ministry, he was excited because he had called him and said, I want you to come minister to my church. And Pastor George, he was just in his early 20s, and he could not wait to go to this patriarch. I'm telling you, this is like big wig of the faith. <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, raised several people uh, through his ministry. The Lord used him to raise several people from the dead. I mean, big, big. He said, but I was sad because when I sat behind his pulpit, I saw this great big auditorium, and there was about 150 people, and they were all in their late 70s and 80s. There was no next generation after him. So he asked him, he called him by name, he said, so-and-so. Why is your congregation so old? He said this, because I was afraid of change. I'm telling you, you'll dry up and die if you don't learn how to change. Are you hearing me tonight? So Acts 13, verse 2, let's look at it again, amplified. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them in approval and dedication and sent them away on their first journey. While they were ministering the Lord, fasting, singing, teaching, witnessing, and praying, the Holy Spirit said, okay, it's time to hitch the wagons and head west. <clears throat> Y'all like my commentary here? I need Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them to go and do. How would you have reacted to this? You're going to take two of our best chefs. We're going to starve. That's two-fifths of our leadership team. They can't go, but 
But none of this happened in Antioch. As soon as this congregation realized it was the Spirit of God who was calling and sending them, they released them. While they were ministering, this, this didn't happen while they were, when there was transition. It was right in the middle of all of it. God is full of surprises. He sees the big picture while we always focus on the here and the now. There was not a preliminary leading. The change of direction came without warning. No memo was sent out ahead of time in an email or a bulletin for prayer, prayer for consideration. The Spirit spoke and the church listened. In order, of, in order of Barnabas and Saul to obey, they needed to be released. They did, and they were. How awesome. The way God chooses to lead his ministry is often difficult for us to wrap our worldly minds around. Finding direction in the corporate world comes a lot easier at times. For instance, there's always a clear bottom line. Shareholders, shareholders to report to, markets that guide company decisions. In the ministry, it's not as that easy, perhaps. We serve a head we cannot see. And during the discovering of God's leading, we are subject to enormous change. These are changes we must follow in the power of the Spirit if we are, are to obey our Lord's leading lead. Though we are accountable to the churches we serve, ultimately, each one of God's servants answer to God. Without that sort of single-minded devotion to the Lord, we run the risk of becoming people pleasers. Christian leaders who become pawns as they focus on pleasing people can easily become wimpy. I wanted to use a different word there, but the Lord convicted me. But trust me, we have all been there. Nothing good ever comes from a ministry devoted to pleasing people. Be focused on being a warrior for the king and not relying on human opinions and longing for human approval. Needs and wants are different when you're being a warrior, you're focused on people's needs and not wants as well. So deliver that. May God deliver every honest pastor, every truth-seeking group of leaders, and every church leader from the bondage of pleasing people. So in the situation of Antioch, God often reaches into a smoothly running ministry operation and says, that person is to go and that person is to stay. I'm calling him to leave this setting in order to go and serve elsewhere. Too often we cling to those people too tightly. God has to pry our fingers away and give us the grace to release so his chosen servants can obey. Selfishness <laughs> wants to keep, not release. So let's be willing to release God's gifted people without reluctance. Think of it like this. By releasing them, you are enabling them to obey God's voice. And when you are called by God to go to a place you, you would never have expected to go, there's no need to be afraid of change. Change brings adventure, and adventure stretches your faith. All that spells growth. Growth happens when you, uh, within you when you face risk head on. Faith and risk go hand in hand. Releasing and obeying requires that, that kind of fearless devotion to God's will. Learn to welcome the risk. Stop waiting for all the answers. All your ducks will never swim in a straight line. The mentality requires little faith and involves no adventure. That is simply boring. And we all know a walk with Christ is not boring. Amen? Now back to Antioch. Pay attention to the response that comes from the congregation. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them in approval and dedication and sent them away on their first journey. No questions asked. No spirit of suspicion. No clinging. Like the men only belong to them. They simply met with the Lord, made sure of his direction, and then took action. They released these men to the work the Spirit had called them to do. They jumped in. Think about it. 
you know it was the Lord when they left because everything was right. Amen. You know, I've been in situations before where somebody has left. And it's. How many of y'all know? I'm just trying to point this out. You know it's the Lord when everything is right and they still leave. But when everything is wrong and they leave, something's up. And flesh is getting involved. Are you hearing me? Acts chapter 13 verse 4 it says, So then being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Talk about change. Barnabas and Saul struck out a brand new adventure onto foreign soil. With the Lord out front and the Antioch church fully standing with them. But to be honest, I've read ahead. They were not booking a cruise ship. It was more of a battleship. Life got interesting quick. While in Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. And they left Antioch for this. Serving in the center of God's will can be a dangerous business. But whether in times of ease or hardship, the primary principle that stands out tonight and always is obedience requires change. Some of y'all get something tonight. I hope you have. Those of you that don't like change, did you get something tonight? Acts chapter 13, this is where we're going. The rest of the story, the plot thickens. When they reach Salamis, Salamis, I don't know. What? Salamis, Salamis, anybody else? S-A-L-A-M-A-I-S. They began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his nickname is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, that's where we get the flip right there, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Oh, man. I mean, you know the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You enemy of all the, the righteousness, with will you not cease to make crooked the straight way of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. He's giving him a little dose of his own medicine here. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he, when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. That's where we'll pick up next week. Are you ready? You're going to come back next week for that? <clears throat> Tonight's takeaway. Keeping the clay of your life flexible calls for constant attention along the way. And if you ever grow hard and brittle to God's leading, you are less usable to him. Stay in the anointing. And I'm telling you, that anointing is going to require some change in your life. Remember, he's the potter, you're the clay. And if he's leading you to do something, you know it's the Lord. 
How many of y'all know you know when it's the Lord? It's not something crazy, right? Well, sometimes it is. It's like, Lord, you really call me to do that? But how many of y'all know if you don't like change, you're going to have a hard time obeying? And in order to you, for you to go to the next level God's called you to go to, you've got to be willing to be obedient. And obedience requires change. Man, I hope you got something tonight. I hope you did. Amen? <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. 717. Give me time to go eat a little dinner with my Marine tonight. God, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a lamp into our feet, that it is a light into our path. God, I just pray that tonight, thank you, God, what you did in our hearts. Lord, if there's places in us that, Lord, we've, we've like a mule, just put our foot in the ground, said, I'm not moving from here. God, I pray that, Lord, something changes inside of us. I pray for divine appointments of people that will lead us along the way. That will help us to get out of that security blanket or that, that, that place where it's just comfortable. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would get out of that rocking chair and we would be who you've called us to be. And we would go where you've called us to go and we would do what you've called us to do. Create in us a clean heart, oh God. Create in us a newness of Jesus. said. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website arenaoflifechurch.org or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.